0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. But thanks for joining us today.
1: Great to have you with us. We are winding down our current sermon series on crucial questions. We've been looking at the entire summer. We're going to be bringing it to an end at the end of this month, so we've got about four weeks left. And as we have, uh, we want to thank you again for participating in this series and for even submitting your own questions. You know, as we've said earlier, we received 70 questions online, and we received some others through email as well throughout this series, and we were really excited to see those questions, because for me, as I read those questions, and a lot of you actually added context to it, you were asking us questions about things that were really going on in your life, things that you were kind of working through, maybe questions that a friend or a family member had asked you, and so uh, we really appreciate that, because that's really the perspective that we've been trying to approach this series from, because at its heart, this series is an equipping series. It's an opportunity for us to be able to equip you with what we believe that god says about any of these given topics so that you can move more faithfully and more personally follow jesus In your everyday life. And so, as we saw those questions come through, we were really encouraged by the fact that this is not just a series about Bible trivia answers and whether or not you can, you know, uh, answer some questions at a party that impresses somebody about your knowledge of the Bible. It's not even about being able to win an argument with somebody that you may disagree with because you have more knowledge about what a certain topic says in Scripture. This is, at its heart, an opportunity for us to follow Jesus more clearly, to understand that God has communicated His Word in a way that is sufficient, in a way that is personal and in a way that really gives us answers to real things that we are experiencing in our lives. And so I hope that it's been that as you have experienced that uh, this summer with us, as you've gone through this series with us. um, I hope that that has been your experience with us as well that's certainly the heart behind it. But because we had 70 questions to handle this series, we have tried to package a few questions together each week, as many as we can, so that we could get to as many as we possibly could, because that was our goal from the beginning, answer as many as we could. I think we've done a good job of being able to package some together under a larger question and answer maybe three or four questions a week in that way. But at the same time, well, just four weeks left, and then we've got three weeks that have already planned out. We know what we're going to be talking about those last three weeks. We had a week here where we could just kind of gather some of those questions that we felt like were important, but didn't really have a place or a home in another, in another message to this point or, or going forward. And so we're, we're, we're basically in a place this morning where we're going to answer a few different questions that we're calling the grab bag of questions. You can also think about this as like the island of misfit questions. They didn't have anywhere else to go, and so we're going to put them all together here this morning. And I almost literally, uh, in the spirit of the grab bag, I almost literally brought up a bag here this morning and just blindly pulled out questions from a bag. But then I realized that I'm not good enough to really just answer those on the fly. And so I really needed to put some research and preparation into this. So we did kind of a digital grab bag. We grabbed a few of those questions and then put them together and, uh, and we've joined them all together. We're gonna to answer four different questions here This morning, And so, in the spirit of what we've been doing throughout the series, which is phrasing everything as a question, kind of Jeopardy style, we're going to answer four questions with really just on the front end, what about this? What about that? What about this? Okay, so here are the four things that we're going to be talking about this morning. What about women in church ministry? What about the end times? What about hell? And what about angels and demons? So, taking all that in, I almost called this message, Women, Demons, the Apocalypse, and Hell but I didn't feel like that really was going to communicate exactly what we wanted to communicate in this. So let's just continue to call it the grab bag week as we go through this. What about these topics, all right? So one thing I want to do before we get started into the questions, I'm going to provide a general answer to each one of these questions in like kind of a three-part focus. In reality, each one of these could probably be its own sermon, but we're not going to have time to go into a deep dive on each one of these issues. So what I want to do is get to the main points of these and why it's important to understand them. All right, so I'm going to ask the question for each one of these. I'm going to ask the first question, why? In other words, why is it important for us to know this and what the Bible has to say about it, and why does the Bible address it? Second question is what? What does the Bible actually have to say about this issue? Which is when we'll look at some Scripture that will show us what the Bible has to say. And then the third is how? So how do we interpret this? How do we understand it? Are there different perspectives on each one of these issues? And which of these things are essential versus what is non-essential? What does North believe? And then I'll finish up each one with what I personally believe. And so yes, we are bringing back the confidence ratings this morning. I'm going to use those confidence ratings as far as what I believe and how confident I am about what my belief is on these individual things, okay? So we got a lot to talk about. Let's get started into the first question. First question is this. What about women and church ministry? So why is this important for us to understand? Well, first of all, we had a, at least a few questions on this issue, as you can imagine. And the questions that were asked were really related to the kinds of roles that women play in church, the kinds of roles that women play in ministry and in leadership. The questions centered around kind of these hot-button issues of are all roles and all positions in the church Uh, For for women, or is there a distinction between men and women? How do those things work? Now, I think how we talk about women in the church is an important issue. You may know this, but in American churches, women outnumber men in American churches almost across the board. In some churches, and in many places, it's almost 60 to 40 in church congregations. We did a little research in the north, and ours ours is a little bit more balanced it's about 1.1 female to every one man as far as what we could do and how we could research that. So that's about 52 to 48 percent, which is a little bit more balanced here at North. But the point is this, is that it, it, how we talk about this and how we understand this impacts at least half of the people, and even more so in some cases, in a church as far as how they serve, where they serve, and the roles that they can serve in. And so it's an important question for us to ask. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this, though? Well, to engage the discussion, I think there are really two major historical perspectives that we want to understand. One is known as the egalitarian view, and the other is known as the complementarian view. Now, it needs to be said in the outset that both views hold in common the fact that men and women are created in the image of God, and that because they're created in the image of God, both men and women are equal in worth. We covered this uh, several weeks ago on Mother's Day when we talked about... Being created in the image of God. But understanding the reality that our worth comes not from a position that we hold, comes not from socioeconomic status, comes not from our gender, comes not from how much money we have or how much influence we have. It comes from the fact that every human being is equal because we have equal worth as being created in the image of God. Genesis one twenty-seven says this, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, the debate is not about worth, but the debate then becomes about role. Role about men and women in the family, and roles regarding men and women in the church. The egalitarian perspective is pretty straightforward to define. It basically says that when it comes to serving in the roles, when it comes to serving in church roles and in the family, genders are essentially not a factor. That there's no distinction or difference between roles and gender, that all genders serve in all roles in the family and in the church. Now, some egalitarians believe that men and women aren't really that different. In fact, they're not different in a lot of ways at all, and that's why they serve in all kinds of different, uh, all kinds of the same roles within the church and the family. Other egalitarians still believe in the distinct differences between me- male and female, but they instead make the case that between, because male and female are needed together— to reflect the full image of God in humanity, which is a biblical idea. Remember, we talked about that several weeks ago. Man can't do it alone. Woman can't do it alone. Together, they reflect the full image of God in humanity, that they should also be able to have all the same roles in the church as well. Complementarians, on the other hand, are a little bit more difficult to define because there's a spectrum of complementarian belief, depending on who you ask, from what we would call strict to more moderate. The complementarian perspective holds that God created men and women to be different and the differences in that cause them to fulfill different roles or are are prescriptive for different roles within the family and within the church and that their differences are meant to complement one another in the church and in the family, hence the term complementarian. But core to the complementarian belief is also the conviction that male headship is ordained in Scripture as started in creation, then continues to the family, and then as a family is extrapolated into the New Testament church. There are several places that a complementarian would point to in Scripture to, to, to defend this position or to, to say that that's where they get this position, but here are a couple of passages that summarize that view really well. Ephesians 5, through 23 says this, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.' For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Colossians three eighteen and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Okay, so of course in those two passages, and we could go on with a few others, the, the dirty word of our culture today is in there. The word submit. People don't like to submit this as part of it, though. And so when we read this, this is where complementarians get their understanding of, in particular, headship and roles within the family and the church. But the question between complementarianism and egalitarianism is not a question of value, again. It's a question of roles. Complementarians would say that there are roles, and these roles complement each other both in the church and the family, and that those roles then involve men leading the family and men having a leadership role in the church. Now that last part is defined differently depending on which complementarian you talk to or depending on what's, what kind of position on the spectrum, so to speak. So for complementarian perspectives, for some of them, it means that women cannot be in leadership at all in the church, that they can only be staff members who don't exercise leadership over a large group of people. It means that women can't have the title or responsibilities of a minister or even a, pa- or a pastor, of course. Women can't teach in mixed, mixed group settings with men present. And women can't really hold any kind of authority, especially positional authority, over men in the church. That is on the strict complementarian side of the spectrum. More moderate positions would shift on uh, a lot of those positions and probably all of them, with many allowing women to have leadership in the church, even in large group ministries and mixed group ministries, and able to teach in all places, including on Sunday mornings during worship service. So that's the what of it all including the perspectives. The question then is, how should we believe in this way? Well, I've talked about the similarities and differences of these views and the spectrum of belief on them. So what does North Bible believe? Well, North Bible Church is a complementarian church, not in the way that we would hold to a strict complementarian view, but what might be defined as a more moderate complementarian view. Essentially what this means is that we are an elder-led church where the position of elder or overseer is reserved for men in the church. But aside from the elder position, which includes the lead pastor as part of that elder team, who oversees the preaching ministry as well, all other places within the church are open for women to use their gifts as the Spirit gives them gifts to use. And so, again, I personally align with North's position on this I am a complementarian, but not overly strict about it. I believe that for the most part, North has a biblical perspective on the complementarian position and the way that men and women relate within the church. My only difference is really on what the church calls elders and pastors. I believe actually when elders, pastors, overseers are used in scripture, they're all the same word in the Greek and they seem to be an office of elder rather than sometimes when we assign titles as pastors. It's a little bit different maybe than what I believe the Bible has to say. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3, it talks about the office of an overseer, and it says this, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, which is a pastor, which I believe is translated pastor, elder, also bishop, if you want to use that word, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded and self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The reason I point that out is because there's often a question of can women be pastors in the church? And when I hear the term pastor, I think of elder. And so here at North Bible and personally the way that I believe eldership is reserved for men as overseers in the church. So when it comes down to it though, I think there are two really important biblical issues that we need to balance in this discussion. First of all is the issue of men occupying a headship role in the family and in the church, which I believe is biblical. There are plenty of places that we could point out in that way if we dig into that a little bit deeper. But it's balanced also with the issue of allowing women to use all of their gifts in the church and complementing the male role in the church as well now here's the thing is that as men lead men men should not be leaders in the sense that we are oppressive or limiting the exercise of women in the church the exercise of women's gifts in the church in fact we should be leading in a way that is servant-minded that allows women to flourish in using all of their gifts to the god-given ability and the way that the spirit directs them that's the function of male leadership in the church now one of the other things the things that i actually really embrace about an egalitarian argument is that men and women do need to be together complementing one another in the church in all areas of the church as much as we can. But we also have to balance this and obey the fact that God has established boundaries for gender roles and a really uh, distinct purpose and a design, especially when it comes to overseers and elders. So my confidence rating on this position is an eight on this issue. Um, This is non-essential in my mind in the sense that it's not related to salvation. You can still be a, Christ, you can be a Christian and still disagree on this issue. I have a lot of pastor friends who are egalitarian in their view. We're still good friends. I still think they're Christians and I still think they love Jesus and they're doing their best to really understand what it means to run a church as a pastor and lead that church. And so the essential is that we have to recognize that all human beings were created in the image of God. They're created with equal worth and value to God and that every Christian who was born again has gifts to contribute to the church and we should be promoting and helping those gifts flourish in their use in the church as much as possible. All right, so from women in ministry, we make a big jump to this question about end times. What about end times? So why should we talk about end times End times issues, first of all? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the future. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but when the Bible talks about the future, the Bible talks a lot about a couple of things. First of all, the future hope that we have in Christ, and secondly, the judgment that is coming on sin and evil. And in, in some kind of Really amazing way those two things are actually tied together. That the hope that we have in Christ is in large part dependent upon the judgment and the removal of sin and evil from this world and from our lives. And so when we talk about what it looks like in terms of the end times, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we're not talking about the end of the world per se, we're actually talking about the beginning of the eternal state. That when the final judgment comes, it is the beginning of Jesus establishing his kingdom and then bringing the new heavens and the new earth as the eternal state, the place where we will live with Jesus and other believers forever. But before that happens, there is this time uh, in history that we know as the end times. Now in some ways I would say technically we're already living in the end times, but when we're talking about end times, more specifically people are usually talking about those specific events that are mentioned in the Bible which lead up to the final judgment and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And since a lot of this is contained in the book of Revelation, I'm going to do a quick discussion about the book of Revelation and how it actually forms a paradigm of interpretation for us throughout all of Scripture when we see references to the end times events. So, what does the Bible say about the end times? Well, as we said, it says quite a bit. But on a general level as we look at the book of revelation we're going to get more of an of of an answer to how should we believe about what this what the bible says about the end times so how should we do this well first of all we need to know that the book of revelation the word revelation itself comes from the greek word that means apocalypse now apocalypse represents or means a dream or a vision and these apocalyptic visions were common in the bible especially among old testament prophets The book of Revelation itself is an apocalyptic vision that the Apostle John gets while he's on the island of Patmos, there as a result of of being arrested and persecuted for his faith. And he gets this apocalyptic vision and writes everything that he sees out, as we know, as the book of Revelation. Revelation. Now, here's something to know about biblical apocalypses, that they are typically characterized by a vision that God gives to somebody, whether it's a prophet or in this case, of course, the Apostle John, that is meant to be communicated to God's people to show what is happening behind the scenes Of the world that we cannot see right in other words the current events and the way things are playing out in our world are interpreted by what's really going on behind the scenes so God gives us a glimpse behind the curtain and shows us a couple of things this is what is really happening behind all that you see and this is where all of it is going and typically those apocalyptic visions were given for two reasons to challenge God's people and to comfort God's people In the the Old Testament prophets, a lot of cases had to do with like this is what is going on and this is why you need to be challenged to be more faithful to following the covenant of God and then this is where God is taking it. So you see both. And so they're comforted with the fact that although they may be being disciplined and although they may be in exile, that God is still doing something else and they're comforted by that. When you look in the book of Revelation, both things are happening. You've got the seven churches who are being challenged to stay more faithful to Jesus, and then you've got these comforting themes throughout that pull us all the way forward to the end, focusing on uh, Jesus' victory and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, and, and Jesus conquering it all and redeeming it all. And this kind of picture of the martyrs being redeemed and all the rest there. So you've got the challenge and the comfort all together at once. So secondly, as it's related to the book of Revelation, this was written as a letter sent to these seven churches which are mentioned, as I said, at the beginning of the book. And it's full of symbolism and pictures. So if you read through Revelation, if you've ever done that before, if you ever got the courage up to actually read through the entire book of Revelation, you may notice that there's a lot of numbers and pictures and symbol language that's used throughout. Now these numbers and symbols are not given to us as a code that we need to break so that we can predict when the end of the world is going to come. Unfortunately, that happened a lot with the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Instead, every number, every image is something that is actually pointing back to some place in Scripture that has previously already been discussed. So the reason that John doesn't explain every single symbol is because he, he, he's trusting in the fact that you're going to understand what those symbols point to and what they mean because they've already previously taken place in the story of Scripture, most of the time in the Old Testament. So these aren't just empty meanings or or empty symbols, meaningless symbols that we're invited to inject our own meaning into. They already have their meanings, and they've already been assigned meaning earlier in, in the Bible. Now, third, since this is a letter, it's meant to be understood from the perspective of the churches of the first century. So what that means is that as we read this, we need to understand how the first century churches would have understood what is being communicated here. In other words, how is it that they're being challenged and how is it that they're being comforted? John himself was being comforted by the fact that he's, he's, he's about to die as a martyr on the island of Patmos for his witness and for his testimony about Jesus Christ. And so he gets this vision to comfort him, to remind him that although there is suffering, although there is pain and persecution that comes with being a Christian in this world, that that's not the end. It's temporary. This is where everything is going, a peek behind the curtain. And so certainly that applies to us today as the church and will apply to every generation until Jesus comes back. But we have to understand from a first century perspective what this means to them Uh, in the first place. And then finally, this book is at its core, most importantly, all about the victory of Jesus. Jesus is seen as the slain lamb who wins victory over sin and evil by going to the cross. He is seen as the lamb who opens the seven seals of the scroll. The only one who is worthy as the spotless righteous one to open basically the plan and purposes and the redemptive purposes of God throughout history is what that scroll represents. And then he is seen as the king who brings his kingdom, who reigns and brings his kingdom in the end and the righteous judge who executes righteous judgment in the end bringing those who believe him, who believe in him and trust in him and who are his people into his presence for eternity, and for those who have rejected him, go off into hell, which is what we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But here's the point. Because of the nature of the book of Revelation, there are all kinds of different interpretations of this book. That plays out end times all throughout Scripture, whether it's in the Gospels or whether we see it in the Old Testament, in a book like Daniel. And I think the, the biggest thing that we want to understand in all of this is that these events are to be interpreted from this heavenly perspective, and this is why God gives us a book like this. It's not about predicting when the world will end or when Jesus will come back. In fact, Jesus actually tells the disciples on one occasion, you're not supposed to do that. Don't worry about it. It's not for you to know these things. But if we think about it from its original biblical context, it'll help us apply this to our world rather than how the book of Revelation is typically engaged, which is to take a current event, to try to take a symbol and assign a symbol, uh, assign meaning to that symbol based on what's going on in the current event in the world around us. And so Magog has been compared to communist Russia in the past and those kinds of things. And this is exactly backwards in terms of how we're supposed to interpret the book of Revelation. So, a couple of things before I leave this subject. I will say this. um, I was going to talk about all these millennial perspectives, like pre-millennial, post-millennial, all millennial and then I realized, first of all, we don't have enough time to get into all that. Secondly, probably maybe 10% of you actually care. And so for those of you who do care, I'll give you this. I am a uh, a historic pre-millennialist. So if that means anything to you, then that's great. Then you understand what that means. I probably are the people who care. If that doesn't mean anything to you. Then you can Google it later, or maybe you just don't care in the first place. But I'll say this. As far as a confidence level on that, I would say it's actually a four. It's really low. Because there are a lot of great arguments that an amillennial position presents, or what I would rather call a present millennial position presents. presents. But here's the, here's, the, here's the point in all of this, is that there's probably actually a fourth position and perspective that is better than all of these because all of these have so many flaws and holes and the point is this is that don't hold too tightly to your view of some kind of millennial position about the way things will happen i i I kind of think about this as like trying to measure the volume of the ocean with a ruler theoretically i guess it's possible for us to understand how these things will play out but at the same time, we're bound to make tons of mistakes and, flaw, and, and have flaws in our measuring and understanding of these things as well. So we need to approach these things with humility, understanding that they are certainly not essential. You can believe in different forms of these beliefs and you can have different ideas about how they will end. Um, but in the end, they're non-essentials and we can come together and disagree on them as well. Okay. So that being said, let's move to this next subject, which is kind of a natu- more of a natural jump. What about hell? So why is it important for us to understand what the Bible says about hell? Well, whether it's eternal judgment or the fiery pit or a few other names that we have for it in the Bible, what we typically call hell is mentioned several times in the Bible. It's mentioned as a real place, it's mentioned as a place of eternal judgment, and it's talked about throughout the Bible as a real place and eternal judgment, eternal punishment, being a real action where God judges all people, and typically, and, and we all typically go to one of two places, one that we call hell, the other one that we call heaven. So what does the Bible exactly have to say about this? Well, I mentioned that it has a lot to say, but I think one thing that it doesn't go into detail about is what exactly is hell going to be like? We get metaphorical images. We get things like we're told that it's a burning fire, uh, an, an unquenchable fire, a pit or a lake of fire. And in those cases, like we're given kind of metaphors. And as we're understanding metaphorically what it's supposed to be, I think we're supposed to also understand and remember that those are just those things, metaphors, right? And so it's hard to really paint an exact picture of this is what hell is going to be like. But at the same time, there are some things we can say about it. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15 says this, and this is a picture of the final judgment of non-believers. And as I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found to be written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there we have the imagery, the metaphor of the lake of fire. In another place, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 36, Jesus talks about judgment as well. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. We might even add every careless word they tweet as well. But it seems pretty clear in the Bible that there is final judgment. I don't think there's any question about that. Not only these passages, but it's all over Scripture. What is less clear, again, is what exactly is hell going to be like. And so some of the ambiguity of hell and what it will be like in Scripture has led people to different conclusions about what exactly happens after the final judgment. That ambiguity along with a struggle to kind of reconcile the loving nature of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God have kind of led us to two main camps on the issue of hell. One would be the, maybe the more traditional view of hell, which is an understanding of hell as an eternal, conscious punish, place of punishment and suffering. The other one is what is known as annihilationism, okay? And so annihilationism ranges in perspectives in the belief that after the final judgment, right, the faithful go with Jesus, new heavens and new earth, and then the, those who rejected Jesus are judged in some way. For some annihilationists, they say right away people are just annihilated, which means they're destroyed and they're gone and, they're, uh, uh, and they don't exist anymore. Others would say there's a period of time that's not eternal where uh, non-believers and those who rejected Jesus do go to hell and they do suffer, but that time is temporary and eventually they are annihilated as a part of that. Now. I want to be clear, annihilationism is actually a, a position that Christians believe. Christians who take Scripture seriously, they can defend it from Scripture. Many of the places that talk about the destruction of people in judgment, they'll point to to say that that represents annihilationism. And, and they're struggling in a, lot of, in a lot of ways to rectify how is it that God can be just and punish someone for eternity for sins just committed in a lifetime. They also struggle with how can God be loving and also uh, send people to hell for eternity to suffer in that way, people who are created in his image. And so there's a real heart behind this, and I would say also uh, an honest approach to scripture in a lot of ways. Annihilationism is, I think, if I'm going to be honest, an attractive position for me personally. I want to believe that it's true. Because when you think about the fact that there are people who you know in this world, that whom you love, that will go to hell, and that will suffer for an eternity, people who are good people, people you love, people you've appreciated in this life, it's hard to take. It's grieving. And I believe it's designed to grieve us in that way. That's part of the impetus of sharing the gospel. And so I, in a lot of ways, want to believe that annihilationism is true. Because it is, although it sounds kind of harsh, it is actually seems to be more merciful, at least from our perspective. But I also have to say That it doesn't really matter what I want to believe or what we want to believe. It matters what God actually says is true. And I believe that the testimony of Scripture leads us to a place where there is conscious punishment in hell as people separated from God for eternity. The descriptions that Jesus gives us of a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is a conscious reaction to suffering that people are experiencing. I think also when Jesus tells the parable about Lazarus and the rich man who is in hell, the rich man who is in hell is experiencing conscious suffering that he is begging to get out of. And there's also a key passage which not only describes hell as an eternal place, but also, I think, sets the paradigm for every time eternal life and eternal, and death are actually contrasted in scripture. Matthew chapter 26, verses 41 through 46, Jesus is talking about that judgment day. He's talking about himself being the one who is the judge. And he says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. So you see the references there to eternal punishment, eternal judgment, and eternal life are contrasted right there. I believe that's a way of understanding exactly what is being talked about here. Now, I can't really imagine all of that and what it looks like, but I think it seems to be pretty clear that eternity is in view here. When you join this with Jesus' words at a place like Mark uh, chapter 9, where he describes hell as an unquenchable fire, I believe that hell is an eternal place that will last. So, as Miroslav Volf says, it's not necessarily about God's justice because God actually judging sin and evil is a loving thing. And he says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. But our God certainly does, and we have that promise. So, so I believe hell is a place of eternal conscious judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. And the substance of it, though, again, is that it's a place where the grace and presence of God is not there, where it allows sin and evil to just operate unhindered and get worse and worse for eternity. Beyond that, i got to be honest with you, it's beyond my ability to completely understand. Um, I can't imagine what it would look like for God's grace and presence to be fully removed from a situation and how bad that would look. I can't imagine for that, for that cycle to just perpetuate and get worse and worse. And I can't even imagine what eternity looks like. And so I don't know what all of those things look like, but I do know what I believe that Scripture says to us, and I believe that my confidence level on this one is an eight, just because there's a bit of ambiguity about what hell is like, not that there is a hell and not that it's not eternal, okay? So with our last question here that we're hitting for today, we've mentioned this a little bit already, but what about angels and demons? Well, I think the first place we need to start is defining exactly what angels are. Angels are spiritual beings who are created by God. They exist in the spiritual realm of creation, but they do not normally have bodies. Now, there are places in scripture and there may be even places in common day experience where angels may appear as human bodies, but at the same time, angels were created as spiritual beings without bodies. And angels and demons are related, of course, because the angels who sinned against God in the beginning and continue to rebel against God and are actively bringing evil into the world are what we call, or what scripture calls, demons. Now, in many places in Scripture, we'll get to demons here in a minute, but in many places in Scripture, angels do appear to human beings. Angels appeared to Abraham. Uh, Jacob wrestled with an angel. Of course, the birth of Jesus was announced to Mary by an angel. And in almost every place in Scripture you look, you'll find angels, whether it's in the Old Testament narratives, the Psalms, the prophets, the Gospels, the New Testament letters, and especially Revelation like we just saw earlier. Angels are mentioned repeatedly. What we also learn is that angels are moral creatures who can speak and act and worship, and they're also capable of sin, as the demons are evidence of. Angels are God's servants. They're often seen as a part of an army. They're seen as messengers. They're also seen as helpers on earth. I believe today that angels are all around us in the spiritual world, and we can't, but we don't usually see them. Sometimes, though, people do claim to see them, and they do believe that they see them. And I got to tell you, I I have, I I actually believe this is true. I've experienced this a few times in my life. Uh, The most recent was about a year ago. We were actually making our drive, Katie and I were making our drive from Oregon down to move here to Arizona. And we were somewhere along the Nevada state line. We were on one of those awful two-lane highways where people drive 80 miles an hour and are like five feet away from each other the entire time. And there was a a young man who was driving a small red car behind a semi-truck about a quarter mile up ahead of us and we watch this whole thing happen but he pulls over into the lane of oncoming traffic and he pulls up next to the semi and before he realizes it and he really has no recourse to go one way or another he realizes that he's not going to make it past the semi and he's going to hit oncoming traffic and so he is going about full speed 80, 75 miles an hour while an oncoming SUV comes down that same same roadway. SUV is going about full speed as well Because the car was low to the ground and it had kind of a pitched nose, the SUV, when it hit the car, which it basically almost directly hit, he tried to swerve at the last minute, which actually made things, you know, crazier. Because as he swerved, he went; the SUV went up into the air and then turned in the air. And as it hit the ground, it rolled over seven, eight, maybe 10 times. It rolled over really, really fast. It was the kind of thing you would see out of a, movie, out of, out of a scene in, a, in an action movie. And we're a quarter mile down the road watching this entire thing happen. Car comes to a rest on the side of the road. It's upside down, this big SUV. And we pull over on the side of the road, me and a couple other cars, and immediately run over to the car to see uh, what's happened. And as I'm running over there, I remember like time standing still, I'm thinking to myself, how many people are in that car, how many people are actually still going to be alive when we get there. Preparing myself for the worst. As we get to the SUV, we realize there are two grown men who are in the front seat, and they're screaming, and you can smell gasoline, and the car's smashed in. I mean, it, it's, it's a horrible scene. And so I start grabbing the passenger side door because it's a little bit it's a little bit ajar, and so I'm grabbing on it and I'm pulling it. There's another guy pulling on it with me, and we're asking these other guys who have come onto the scene. Five grown men at one point are trying to pull this passenger door open and it won't open because it's compressed and crushed inside the frame it's in the middle of doing that where all of us are focused on this one side Then we hear a voice from behind us say come over to the other side of the car as calm as can be and I gotta tell you what was weird about this You got five guys who are just like determined men who are determined to just do what they're doing and we all stopped at the same moment by the authority and the calmness of this voice walked over to the other side of the car and he said kick in that window we kicked in the window, pulled the guys out, and got them to safety. There was only two men in there. The rest of the car was empty, fortunately. And it took about two or three minutes. And so I turned around to thank the guy who, because we would have been on the side of that. We would have been pulling on that thing for 15 minutes, as stubborn as we were to get that thing open. And he was gone. Couldn't see, couldn't find him anywhere. There was about 15 people on the scene, couldn't see him down the road, couldn't see any car that he got in. There was not enough time for him to get across the street to get back to a car. It happened all so quickly. And here's the thing. There are maybe other explanations for this. But when I put together all the fact that the calmness of a voice, the authority with which he spoke, and the fact that he didn't actually do anything, he just told us what to do, I don't know. And so I, believe, I certainly believe those things happen. And I certainly believe, although they may be rare, they're even more rare, I think, that we notice them. I think they happen more often than we actually realize. But here's the thing, is that angels are constantly around us, they're constantly watching us, and one of the things that they watch for and they celebrate the most is seeing the redemptive plan and the redemptive history of God take root in this world. Actually, they're not omniscient, but they know God's plan, they know Scripture, and they celebrate things like you and I being transformed spiritually by the gospel. You and I being growing in our faith in Jesus. Which First First Peter chapter one verse twelve says this: It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we get this picture of like angels actually looking at how this good news that is being preached is actually taking root and changing people's lives, and they're celebrating as they worship alongside us. Whenever we're worshiping, we're surrounded by a host of angels in the spiritual world that are worshiping along with us. Whether that's with 15 people in this room, 300 people in this room, or you and your family worshiping at home. And it's the thing that we will do with angels for eternity as eternal creatures. Now, I think as mysterious and wonderful as angels may seem, we need to remember also, though, this is kind of crazy to think about, But human beings are the only ones created in the image of God. Angels are not. And so we're actually told that at one point we will judge the angels. And of course the angels that we will judge are the demons who will be judged on that day and sent to hell. Demons are the angels who sinned against and rebelled against God at some point between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything including all of the angels and says that it's all good. At some point between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 Satan shows up because he's tempting even the garden in Genesis chapter three, and so Satan and a large multitude of angels had fallen and rebelled against God, and those are the ones that we know as demons according to Scripture. Second Peter two four says this for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, there's a lot more that can be said, I think, about angels and demons, but I think since we see so much of it in Scripture, we should definitely be aware of the fact that they are mentioned for a reason. I think one thing they remind us of is that the spiritual world is real and that the inhabitants of that world do have an impact on the world around us. Satan is real and demons are real, and they are actively opposing the work of God in the world and trying to destroy everything that God created to be good. Satan is the originator of sin and he continues to try to destroy us and tempt us through sin and destruction. 1 Peter 5, 5, 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, be firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, I would say this at the same time, right? Satan is this roaring, prowling lion looking to destroy. But at the same time, even though Satan and his demons have an effect on our world and sometimes in our lives, we need to remember that it's God who is still in control and he limits the power and influence of Satan and his demons. We don't know, how, we don't know exactly why and when and why he does it in some cases and other cases, but we are assured of the fact that God is still sovereignly in control. This is why I would say that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed in the sense that a demon owns the possession of a Christian. When I think about Jesus' analogy about binding the strong man of the house, a born-again Christian has is the house of a Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, if you will. And so the Holy Spirit who is in a Christian possesses the Christian in that sense. And to say that in some, in some way that a demon can bind the strong man of the Spirit of God in somebody is not biblical. But I would say that a Christian can be demonically tempted a Christian can be demonically influenced, and a, t- a Christian can even be demonically oppressed in some cases, but not possessed as being owned by a demon. Okay? So. I'm not sure exactly how I'm supposed to rate this one right here. Uh, whether we're talking, if we're talking about whether Satan and demon and angels are, demons and angels are real, that's a 10. I think that's entirely biblical. It's about as close to an essential belief as we've discussed here this morning. I would also say that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed for the reasons that I just stated, so I'd give that a 9 confidence rating as we close. Okay. So again, as we bring this all to a close, this has been a grab bag day. This is the place where we usually like try to tie all the themes together and really isn't a huge unifying theme among all of these things. But I do want to say this. I want us to remember this about God and his faithfulness to us. Is that as we think about how God answers our questions and how God provides direction in our lives through his word, that first of all, his word is sufficient. It answers all of the essential things that we need to know. Now we may have questions that we feel like aren't addressed as much as we would want them to be in the Bible. We may have questions that aren't answered the way that we want them to be in the Bible, but at the same time, in terms of what is essential, God gives us those answers through his eternal sufficient word. Secondly, God's word is personal. It's not just about answering Bible trivia questions and having knowledge about theology so that you can impress people and win at, you know, Bible Trivial Pursuit, which by the way, if you ever want to play Bible Trivial Pursuit with me, I'm pretty good at it, so we could, you know, maybe play sometime. But Aside from that, really, it's God's personal word to us through which He calls us and helps us understand that what He is doing has purpose to it and has a redemptive plan for us, and He invites us to join us to join Him in relationship and join Him in those purposes. And so, it calls us and equips us for discipleship. And so, I hope that as you think about that, just as Miss Kayla said earlier, uh, God is God welcomes your questions. I think one of the ways we do learn, just as Kayla said earlier, is that we learn by asking questions. And so I hope that by asking these questions and exploring them a little deeper, this is giving you a little bit more insight into, first of all, maybe what the Bible has to say about these issues, but also ways that you can dive deeper into an issue that you feel like you want to find out more about. And so to that end, I'm always available uh, for for feedback or or any kind of questions, follow-up questions that you have, so you can send those along to me as well. Let's pray, and I want to invite the band to join us as we close this morning father we want to bring this back to the place we started with which is we want these uh, questions these discussions uh, to guide us more closer to your heart as we think about seeing things from your perspective we realize that we take in so much throughout the week that's information whether it's through social media or the media watching news or uh, just talking with people. Lord, we take in so much information that we don't even realize is forming our hearts and forming our minds. And I thank you for a time where we can come to your word and talk about things that matter and things that you're concerned about, but also things that form our hearts and our minds. And I pray that the words that we have talked about to this, this morning and the way, the way that we have uh, engaged it and the way that you have shown yourself through all of this uh, would weigh heavy on our hearts and would transform us even as we think about it. And Spirit, we ask that you would help us to take what is true from what has been talked about today and to put it into our hearts that we would know and we'd have confidence in things like what it means to have a hope in an eternal future, that we would be challenged by the fact that this world is temporary and it is fading away. And so we're not called to put our roots and our hope in this world. And at the same time, would you create in us an urgency, a sense of urgency that all people would know the gospel, because the final judgment is real, and because final punishment is real. And Lord, you have given us your salvation so that we might not face those things, but we might be free and declared righteous because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.
0: In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts.
1: So thanks again for joining us this morning. I wanted to give you just a quick update. I think this is kind of becoming a weekly thing for us, but we are uh, still looking at the numbers in our state as far as new cases and hospitalizations and all the numbers that are, you know, new deaths and those kinds of things related to COVID. And uh, we are working to try to get up to a place where we can meet in person again soon, hoping that the state allows us to do that um, and, and, and kind of allows us to move in that direction. And so um, be in prayer about this. Every time you, you, you miss being here, every time you get frustrated with the fact we're not opening as, as soon as you would want us to, use that as an opportunity to pray. That could be an angel telling you to pray, all right? So use that as an opportunity to pray and um, pray for those who are, who are kind of working their way through this. Pray for those who are fearful, those who are struggling, those who are facing illness right now in the various hospitals throughout our state and throughout our country, okay? So we're going to join back next week. Hopefully you can join us next week. Look forward to seeing you then. Until then, have a great week. We're going to finish up the next three weeks in our current series on Crucial Questions, and we're looking forward to starting a new series in September. So y'all have a great week, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks.